The reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 4. Jesus has left Judea and he's on his way to Galilee. We begin in verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Would you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is the word of the Lord. 
May I speak in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Before I start, I just want to say thank you. Um, It's really good to be back. (laughs) Um, And I want to thank those of you who prayed, particularly for me on Monday as I took my dad's funeral. Um, I got through that by the grace of God and being held by the prayers of people. It was tangible and it was real, and I'm very, very grateful. So thank you. God is good. What did you come here to do today? Did you come for the phenomenal cakes and the coffee? (laughs) Did you come to see your friends? Did you come because you were on a rotor? Or did you come for something else? The story in our passage today is about an encounter with an outsider, Christ and the woman at the well. And the passage ends with a call to worship in a particular way. And that is our theme for today. What is real worship? What's the point of all this? Why are we doing this? Why do we gather like this? And so I want to explore that key phrase, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Christ says that for those that belong to God. So first the Jews, now also the Gentiles, there will be an opportunity to worship what we know. So Jesus does seem to be telling us in that passage that there is a right way and a wrong way to worship. So how do we know if we are getting it right or wrong? Can I have a second slide, please? Thank you. So this painting is of the woman at the well, and I don't know if you can just make it out because it is very shaded, but if you look closely at the woman's face... On the left, what do you see? Two faces, yeah. Thanks, Sally. Yeah, she has two faces. One is looking down at what she's doing, preoccupied with the job she's got to do. And the other one is turning to Christ. It's like her eyes and her heart are opening. Jesus wants her to know, to understand. He's drawing her from where she is to something different. I want us to be like that woman this morning, two-faced in a good way, (laughs) open to letting Jesus draw us to a new way of thinking about what we're doing. Or are we so completely stuck in our routines and our patterns and our habits in the way we do church here, for example, that we're going to find that difficult? Let's see. So what do we know about worship? I'm going to ask you a question. It's not rhetorical. You get to discuss this with your neighbor. How would you define worship? What is worship? Have a go. There are no right or wrong answers, I promise. I'm not going to ask anybody to tell me what they said. Just have a go. What do you think? Uh, We might want to lose that one. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No clues. (laughs) Um, Have a chat about what you think worship is. Just a couple of minutes. Off you go. Okay. Told you I wouldn't give you long. (laughs) Was that a difficult thing to pin down? It's probably worth saying at this point that when we talk about worship, we're talking about a number of activities across our lives. Is that something that was starting to come out in your discussions a bit? So it's more um, than just Sunday worship. Sunday worship is one particular way in which we worship God. And certainly in our services, worship is the whole thing. It's not just singing, okay? It's a broader category than that. Now, if we look at the derivation of the word worship, we get worth-ship, 
at Lighthouse, um, Andrea um, did a, a really good play on words with the idea of ship being our lives, carrying us towards something. But actually, it's to do with us attributing worth to God, if you, if you break the word down. But that's quite a flawed idea, isn't it? Because it seems to put the emphasis on our assessment of God. Now, the Greek word in the New Testament used most commonly for worship is a word called proskunio, and it carries the meaning of coming forward to kiss, but not so much a kiss on the cheek. It's more like a dog licks the hand of its master. Isn't that interesting? So it's a description of a, an intimate act, but it's a submissive and a very reverent act. Now, we will have that definition now we've all worked out what the answer is anyway. So this is David Peterson, who's a theologian and New Testament scholar, and he says this, the worship of the true and living God is essentially an engagement with him in terms that he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. That shifts the weight of it, doesn't it, a bit? So what implications might that have for us as worshippers? Well, it comes from God as a gift to us, not the other way around. Though in response, we offer ourselves to God. Now, the Old Testament sets up worship in a very particular way. And I think it's quite interesting to spend a little time reminding ourselves of that. So if I can have the next slide, please. So up there, we've got a variety of things. We've got pictures representing the Ten Commandments. Pretty certain that's what Moses looked like. Um, we, we've got the, uh, the original movable tabernacle, which was the place of worship as they were nomadic. We've got the design of the, of the temple. And we've got the Ark of the Covenant there in which the tablets of stone were put, which was a focus of worship too. Now, through the Old Testament, we've got a very specific and prescribed design of the tabernacle and temple. And again, it's God's design and initiation the way it's described in the Old Testament. It's not ours. There are, says God, particular ways to worship God. And although the hands of humans are involved, it's not a casual thing in the Old Testament. It's careful, and it's gradual, and it's prescribed. So we've got obedience as part of that worship. Obedience, the Ten Commandments. Obedience in arranging matters for worship as God has specified and with the introduction of those rules. If you want to be my people, this is how you live, and this is how you worship. And that also includes the sacrificial system as well. So let's think now about an example of worship going wrong in the Old Testament. We can have the next slide. So here we've got a picture of the golden calf. I don't know if you're familiar with that story, but Moses is up the mountain hearing from God, getting those stone tablets with the commandments on. And he's away for some time. And the people grow restless without their leader, much as you will have been over the last month, obviously, while I was away. And, uh, and they ask Aaron, their priest, to make a physical representation for them to worship. And he takes their donated gold and jewelry, and he makes this calf. Now, the important thing we need to note about this story is that neither he nor the people are setting out to make an idol of another god. It's much more subtle than that. What they actually want is a physical version of their one God, the God who brought them out of Egypt, and that's what they think they're doing. So it is idolatry, but it's a very subtle form of idolatry. 
this is a really human tendency, isn't it? To try and bring God down to our own level, to make God in our own image. So there may well be ways that we have our own golden calf issues in our worship today. We need to make sure that in the way we speak about God and about Jesus, we are as far as is humanly possible not trying to worship our own construction of God or reduce God to other than who God is, to remake God in our own image in that way. And that's a really tough call because we are human and we are finite and our brains are finite and we can't wrap our heads around who God truly is. But that's got to be our heart's desire. So another slide, please. So... A big part of Old Testament worship was the need for sacrifice and blood. And it was used for cleansing and for wiping away and for forgiveness. And the the image there is an image of the scapegoat. They had a Day of Atonement festival, a way of thinking about the word atonement, at one being made at peace again with God. Um, The sin of the people was conferred onto the scapegoat, which was driven away into the wilderness, And then a second goat was offered as sacrifice for that sin. So there was this whole complicated priestly sacrificial system. And it pointed prophetically to Christ. Now this atonement through animal sacrifice is really alien to us, isn't it? It's a tricky one. It's so alien to our culture and our experience. But there's no getting away from the fact that it was once a major and a normal part of the worship life of the people of God. And in fact, it was in many of the other ancient Near Eastern religions. So it was part of the culture of the time. It made sense at the time. And it was set up on the premise, and this is the thing that's important that we need to take away, that God is holy and that people have to be made holy to be able to remain in right relationship with God. That was the point of it. So, of course, what we can take from it now is the prophetic fulfilling of the need for a once-for-all sacrifice by Jesus Christ. And so we don't have that same ongoing need for atonement, and we don't have to involve animal sacrifice, thank God. But it helps us to make sense of the Eucharist too. And we need to remember that need that we have. The need has not gone away for that atonement. It's just that our route to it is different. It's been won That holiness has been won through Christ, through what he has done for us. And we need to remember that God is holy. And we need to keep that sense of God's holiness at the heart of our worship today. So you see, we've got all these Old Testament practices, but they do speak forward into our time and our day, don't they? God's desire to dwell with us. God's commitment in covenant relationship with us. God being holy and other than us, and that need we have to worship God as revealed by God, not our own constructs. Let's have a look at the temple. So you might have seen um, this illustration before, but it's a kind of uh, an above view of the layout of the temple. And the temple itself was really symbolic of God's desire to dwell with his people. And it points prophetically to Christ who came among us in flesh and blood, to dwell alongside. Remember, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And all that imagery about Christ being the cornerstone. The physical temple was no longer needed in the same way after Christ. So we've got 
the layout of the temple here, which we can see is maybe a pattern for coming into the presence of God in worship. So we've got the outer and the inner courts about coming in in humility and repentance and praise. There were places to wash there to get ready. And then the holy place, that was the place of the word of God's Holy Spirit. But then the holy of holies, you can see on the far left there, separated by a curtain. And that was where God's glory and God's presence rested. Now we don't have the same setup, but our liturgy in the services does a similar thing. We have our preparation for worship, don't we? We get our hearts and our minds ready. We have a hymn. We have a prayer of preparation. We have confession. We have the word of God. We have the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. And we are an Easter people. What happened to the temple curtain at Easter? If I can have the next slide. (laughs) Ripped right through from top to bottom. This great big heavy curtain. Deeply, deeply symbolic. It screened the holy place, the presence of God in the holy of holies from the people. And now there is access So does that mean that all those Old Testament worship ideas are no longer relevant? Well, clearly the landscape has now fundamentally changed, but there are those truths. That danger of subtle idolatry, the danger of trying to remake God in our own image, to define God in ways that are too casual or diminish God's holiness. The awareness of our tendency towards self-initiated, self-resourced, self-seeking worship where we are the object of the affection, not God. And all of that gives us a huge problem straight away, doesn't it? Because we're human and we cannot fully grasp or comprehend God. So inevitably, we are going to, as we gather, fall short and describe ways uh, God in ways that fall short of who he really is. So what do we do? Well, back to the woman at the well. Something happens to her in the face of God's glory and presence in Christ. She changes. And that's what we must seek too. Meaningful encounter with God, the living God, in a way that transforms us. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What we're invited to is a participation in the life of the Trinity. Worship of the Father through the Son, through that torn curtain, in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're invited to be caught up into that holy relationship. Let's look at the next slide. So maybe worshipping in spirit and in truth is a bit like the building blocks we've got here. It starts on the bottom there with a yellow block. We've got revealing himself to us. God's revealing God's self. Then we have our response to God, which we can make in confidence through Jesus Christ. But we do it enabled by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to help us do that. Because that's the good news. It's not dependent on us. It's dependent all the way through on the activity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can you hear the release in that? 
And you contrast that with the striving that was necessary through the Old Testament practices to access God. What we've been given is pure gift. It's the invitation into God's presence by the means that God makes possible. Back to that Peterson quote. One of the ways we participate in this relationship is through the Eucharist. Can I have the next slide, please? Thanks, Vanessa. It's why it's such a core part of the Christian worship. And it involves our whole body, doesn't it? The Eucharist, our posture, our senses. We have to get up to receive here. Unless you're very special and then it comes to you. (laughs) It's evangelistic, the liturgy of Holy Communion. It's, It's literally the gospel and the altar call, isn't it? It's the continued remembrance and dependence on God. And then there is something of the very presence of God in the act of breaking the bread. Think about that story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus breaks the bread and they know him. They recognize him in that. Next slide, please. This is from Romans. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So that's something about worshipping in spirit too. And that goes way beyond Sunday, doesn't it? That's what we do with our lives. Let's have the next slide, thank you. So there's some stuff we have to get in balance here. So we've got an image of scales. We've got to balance God's closeness and presence to us through Christ with God's holiness and God's freedom to be God. And what we've learned already from the Old Testament is that we've got to hold those things in tension in our worship. We need that balance because I think if it tips too far one way or the other, we're in trouble. If we're focusing too much on one to the exclusion, if we're too much Jesus is my friend and my pal, and we forget God's holiness and that he calls us to a better way of living and being, and he equips us to do that, then we're going down a tricky path. If we go the other way, and God is so distant from us because he is so holy that we fear we may not approach, then we miss out on that invitation to participate in the life of the Holy Spirit. We would live poor worship lives if we get those out of balance. C.S. Lewis wrote about the Christ-type character, Aslan the Lion, in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. What does Moses do when he encounters God in the burning bush? I haven't got holes in my socks. Go me. (laughs) He takes off his shoes. He can approach, but he's on holy ground. How do we feel when we come to worship? I confess I come sometimes thinking with my head full of the practicalities of the service. And I hope that somewhere within that, I will click onto God and focus and be able to have that encounter. That's, that's normal in worship, isn't it? We come from busy lives and we somehow kind of find ourselves in the middle of it and we try and focus and we, we ease our way in and some point in the service we connect. What if we came hungry? What if we came 
and metaphorically took off our shoes as we came in because we are invited to encounter with the living God. That's massive. That's massive. What, church, what kind of a church would we be if we came hungry to encounter the living God when we came in our worship? We might not know what that looks like yet. It might take us a while to feel our way to for, to, uh, towards it, but what if our hearts were there? What if our, if our minds were there when we came? What would that do to us? There's loads of help in the Bible about living lives of worship. Psalm 119 is, is all about longing for God and God's ways. John 14, 15 and 21, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's living out worship in our lives, isn't it, through obedience. Worship includes feelings, but it's not limited to them. It's a lifestyle dedicated to God. And true worship will free us and it will change us. Cleansed, commissioned, transformed. That's what happens to Isaiah in chapter 6 when he's in the presence of God. It leads him to the point where he says, here I am, send me. So we've got a lot of things to think about when we consider how we worship. Fundamentally, it doesn't come down to style or tradition or how slick the presentation is or the visuals are or the music is on a Sunday. Although it's good to do those things well enough so that they help rather than hinder our connection with God. And we are blessed. We are really blessed. And we will pray for them a bit later in the service by the people that offer themselves to make that possible. It comes down to our heart attitude to God, our desire to be that kind of worshipper that the Father seeks. As Jesus says to the woman at the well, our thirst for that living water. I want to live out of that living water. Do you? Do you want that kind of water? Are we thirsty? Can we ask God for that thirst? If this comes from God, can we seek God for that hunger and that thirst? We want to resolve to be the kind of church that worships God as far as we humanly can for who God is. We want to engage our hearts, our minds, our spirits across the living and the activity of the whole of our lives, not just on a Sunday. Sunday is just one dimension of how we can worship God. We're called to whole life worship. And it's life-giving stuff. It's that living water. So we need God's enabling to do that. We need to be carriers of the Spirit. We need to be filled with the living water. And Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, an outsider living a very sinful life, encourages us because it shows us that he intends that gift to be for absolutely all of us. Amen. God's purposes to us are good. We have to seize what's open to us to enable that transformation in our lives, or we will always be running out of our own strength. That's not what we're called to. We're called to let that living water transform us so that we can be agents of transformation. Amen.